Good morning. Just as a piece of housekeeping, I know Pastor Rolo last week said that we would be in the book of Luke, but he forgot that he wasn't going to be here this week. So we are in Acts. Luke wrote it, so (laughs) there you go. Let's go to the Lord for help. Our God and Savior, Lord, we thank you that you didn't leave us in the dark to grope around to speculate about who you are and how you can be pleased and how men and women can be saved. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you inspired holy men to write it. We thank you that you moved in history to preserve it. And we thank you, God, that you gave us education so that we can read it and understand it, O oh Lord. Lord, we thank you for your spirit this morning. Fill us, O oh God, so that we might hear from you, from your word, and believe it, O oh, oh God. Lord, help me to do what you have commanded all preachers to do, God. That is to rightly divide your word of truth, glorify your name, and draw the hearts of your people closer and closer to you, O oh God. Lord, help me by the aid of your spirit to call back those who are backsliding, to encourage those who desire to walk with you faithfully, O Lord, and to call sinners to repentance. Lord, I pray the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart are acceptable in your sight. O O God, you are our rock and you are our redeemer. It's in the holy name of Christ we pray. Amen. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, the power, it is the power of God. Amen? Whenever God sees to it that his gospel is proclaimed, there will only ever be two responses, belief or unbelief. When the one and only true gospel is preached, to some it will be a sweet-smelling aroma, And to other people, it will be the stench of death. To one group, it will be life and peace and joy and salvation. And to another group, the axe is being laid to the root, and it will be judgment and condemnation. Every person in earshot will will respond with either belief or unbelief. There is no middle ground. There is no neutral position. There was only one true gospel and two responses. Our sermon text today is Acts 4, 1 through 17. Pastor Ed just read it for you. And what this passage is, what this passage does, it provides for us a sanctified illustration of 1 Corinthians 1.18, that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so this passage, what it does is it, it helps us to identify our heart's true response to the one and only gospel. It helps us to identify, do we actually respond in belief or are we responding in unbelief? So in this sermon text, in this text today, we'll see various groups of people responding to the preaching of the one and only gospel. Some were annoyed, some were transformed and others refused to believe. Nevertheless, every one of these responses can 
be boiled down to one or two categories, belief or unbelief. So just so we can have some context here, back in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John were going into the temple. The Bible says it was about the ninth hour. That's about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And as they were entering into the temple, they saw a, a lame beggar at the gate, and they healed him miraculously. And this man, he started jumping and leaping, and he began to walk with Peter and John into the temple, praising God. And then the people who were in the temple recognized him as the man who used to sit at the gate begging. And they were obviously filled with wonder and amazement because a, a miracle obviously has been done. And then Peter and John, they go into the temple, into a spot in the temple that's called a Solomon's portico. And Peter preached the gospel to the crowd. And that brings us to the very beginning of Acts chapter 4. And that's where it says we read, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, Peter and John, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. That's verse, verses 1 through 3. And then it says, it goes on to say, that the next morning the council met to investigate the matter. And you see this at the beginning of verse 5. Look with me at verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? So what Peter does is he's basically, Peter and John are being interrogated. So the council is trying to figure out, they see this man is healed, and they're like, who told you to do this? Who gave you the authority and the power to do this? And so as Peter is responding to their question, he takes the opportunity to preach the gospel, right? And at the end of his sermon, verse 12 is at the end of his sermon. And that's, if you're looking at your bulletin, that's the first point in our bulletin, that there is only one gospel. At the end of his sermon, in response to this interrogation, Peter says, unambiguously, there is only one gospel. Amen? So let's read his entire sermon. It starts at Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And then here in verse 12 it says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which men must be saved. So again, Peter is responding to the question in verse 7. He answers the question 
by saying that it was Jesus, it was in the name of Jesus that they made this healing. And then he describes who Jesus is, and then he makes this very clear and unmistakable statement. Salvation is given solely and exclusively in the name of Jesus Christ alone. No one else can provide salvation. There is no other gospel for you to turn to. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father except through him. This cannot be misunderstood. This is probably one of the most unambiguous statements in the Bible, and you have to do some serious mental gymnastics to misunderstand what is being said in this passage. Amen? Now, this belief, the exclusivity of the gospel, is probably one of the most despised and rejected teachings in all of the Christian faith. Even among those people who claim to be self-professed Christians, this doctrine is, there are more and more Christians growing in their rejection of this doctrine, right? Earlier this year, there was a survey done by Ligonier called the State of Theology. And in that survey, they discovered that 56% of the Christians polled agreed with this statement that God is pleased by worship that comes, from a, that comes from those outside of the Christian faith. So needless to say, this is not a popular doctrine. This is not a popular teaching. Furthermore, this term exclusivity, this term was not originally coined or taken on by Bible-believing Christians. It was originally introduced by those who did not accept this belief and desired to paint this belief in their bad light. So there's an author, his name is Alan Race, in 1982, he wrote a book titled Christian, Christians and Religious Pluralism. This man is not a friend of the gospel. He does not believe the biblical understanding of the gospel. And in this book, he is credited with inventing the terms exclusivism, inclusivism, and pluralism. And his goal in making these terms was to portray his views of pluralism as welcoming and inviting and loving and enlightened. And in contrast, he was trying to paint the historic biblical understanding of exclusivity as something that's uninviting and unloving and excluding other people. So in some ways, to be fair, this term exclusivity, what it does is it misrepresents what the gospel is act, what the message of the gospel actually is, okay? Because the term exclusivity, what it does is it suggests that the gospel of Jesus Christ shuts people out, right, and shuts the door on all other religions. But in reality, there was never any other door that existed. The truth is that the gospel, what the gospel does, it opens the only door and provides a way when there was no way. Amen. Ephesians 2, 12 says, we were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, and had no hope. 
no hope. We were without God in the world. You had no way. There was no way outside of Christ to know God. So I ask you, how can showing a slave the only way to freedom be thought of as keeping people out? If there was a fire in this building, and there's six doors in here, and all of those other doors is going to lead you to another fire, and that's the only door that can get you out to save your life, and I'm pleading with you, go through that door. I'm not excluding those other doors. I'm saving your life. Amen? Amen. That's not exclusionary. That's not exclusionary. The gospel keeps nobody out. The gospel provides the only possible way in. Amen, church? Because, listen, everything that God provides in the gospel for our salvation, no other religion can give to you. No other religion can provide to you the thing, the things that God provides to his people in the gospel. In the gospel, God gives us his precious son, Jesus Christ, the God-man, as the only sufficient savior, provides true forgiveness, and offers us an eternal high priest. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. No other religion provides you, provides man, with a sufficient savior. Family, when we talk about salvation, our problem is with the creator. You understand that? We have a problem with the almighty, all-powerful, omniscient creator. He spoke the world into existence. He spoke to nothing and created everything. The Bible says he scooped up the oceans in his hands. I heard one preacher say he fastens his vest with the stars, and he has the earth as his footstool. He's all-powerful. He's almighty. He's all-wise. He knows every thought you've ever had. He knows every inclination of your heart. He knows everything you've ever done in the dark. He knows everything you've ever done in the light. He knows every lie you ever told and every sin you ever forgot about. And we have offended him. We have transgressed his laws more times than we can count. And this almighty, all-powerful God is just, he is holy, and he will not let the guilty go free. We have a major problem. So, the person with whom we have to deal is the Lord of glory. That's the person that we have the problem with because of our sin. And his justice will be satisfied. So, whoever is able to satisfy his righteous anger must be capable and powerful enough to deal with this kind of God. So what this is, what this means for us, is that this requires a Savior who is mighty to save, family. And therefore, 
only a Savior who is truly God is sufficient enough to deal with the problem that we have. So I'm going to tell you the story. My wife told me not to tell it. I'm telling it anyway. Look, I was at the park one Sunday playing football, and I'm running around jogging. She's eating, had a little picnic laid out for the kids, and one of my teammates, big guy about Doug's size, he's jogging around, snatches her food. Now, he's just playing what I don't know what's going on, right? And when I jog back around, she says, Corey, some dude just took my food. And I'm like, where is he? And she says, him right there. I'm like, him right there? <laughs> now, I was willing to go get the food. But because of his, this is a mountain of a man, the best that I could do is die, right? I was insufficient to deal with that problem, right? And in the same way, because of who God is, you have to have a savior that's sufficient enough to take upon himself the wrath of almighty God. You have to have a sufficient savior if you want to be saved. If you want your God problem the problem that you have with God to be corrected, if you want his wrath to be placated, you have to have a God, who's a Savior, who's sufficient enough to deal with that problem. Amen? So no other religion, no other religion, puts forward a Savior who is truly God and sufficient enough to deal with this problem. No other religion provides you with the Savior sufficient enough to bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. No other religion provides you with a Savior who is sufficient enough to be stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. No other religion provides a Savior sufficient to be crushed for our iniquities and take upon himself the chastisement that brought about our peace. Only biblical Christianity provides you with a Savior sufficient enough to save you. Amen? No other religion provides you with a Savior like this. Not only that, no other religion provides you with true forgiveness of sin. Turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. Colossians 2. It's in the New Testament between Matthew and Revelation. <laughs> Colossians 2, chapter 13. I'm sorry, Colossians 2, verse 13. Colossians 2, verse 13. No other religion provides you with a sufficient Savior, and no other religion offers you true forgiveness of sin. Listen to your God. Listen to what your God says. He says, And you who were dead in trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Here's how he did it. Having forgiven us all of our trespasses. And then in verse 14, he says this. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it on the cross. Family, do you see? Hold on. Did you see the progression, that wonderful progression of how the Lord says he provides forgiveness for us. So the Lord is not simply saying, okay, you're forgiven. No, what he's saying is, is he explains how 
you were forgiven. He says, when he says in verse 14, by canceling the record of debt. So there was a debt that was, because you've sinned, there was, you, compiled, you was piling up debt, right, on your account. And that, that debt stood against you as an indictment. And that God canceled it. Okay? He, he wiped it out. He blotted it out. He erased it. This is what, the, what it means, right? And then he says, just in case some of y'all don't believe me, right, and that you might want to doubt and think that there's a new charge against us, after he cancels it, it says he sets it aside. Now, what that means is that he, he, he removed it from the midst between you and God. There was a, this debt was an obstruction and an obstacle to your fellowship with God. So first he cancels it, then he takes it, and he puts it to the side. And because he know that y'all don't like listening to him, and you're going to doubt him, he goes even further. And he says, after he erased it, blotted it out, and set it to the side, he took it and he nailed it to the cross. So your sin debt that you compiled for sinning over and over and over and over again. He blotted it out, moved it to the side, and he nailed it to the cross. And your sin has been completely and utterly canceled and erased. He took it, he threw it in the sea of forgetfulness. There is no bottom. And all of your sins are forgiven. Past, present, and future, there is no one left to condemn you. You are free. No other religion offers you that, family. Our Roman Catholic friends, I love y'all, but y'all going to purgatory. That's what y'all think. Y'all think y'all could get saved, right? That y'all got a Savior who died on the cross, and then after you come to faith and then you sin, you still got you to pay for your own sin. I don't want that. You can keep that, Jesus. Okay? This Gospel, this biblical gospel provides you with actual forgiveness of sin. You are forgiven if you are in Christ, completely and freely. It's all gone. Amen? No other religion offers you this, family. Listen, I'm not banging on them. I'm just saying I just got something better. That's it. This is better. Amen? Okay? Okay? So no other religion offers you a sufficient Savior. No other religion offers you true forgiveness of sin. And no other religion provides us with an eternal intercessor. You understand that? No other religion puts forward an intercessor who is able to save to the uttermost anyone who draws near to Jesus, anyone who draws near to God, I'm sorry, since our intercessor always lives to make intercession for us. No other religion provides you with a high priest who has entered not into the holy places made by human hands, but into heaven itself, the Bible says. And he now appears in the presence of God on your behalf. What other religion has offered you that? 
Family, no other religion makes it possible. I'm sorry. Forgive me. No other religion offers you an intercessor who makes it impossible for anyone to condemn us any longer because he has provided us a savior who has died and more than that has risen and he is right now at the right hand of God and he is indeed interceding for us. Only biblical Christianity provides us with a high priest who is seated at the right hand of majesty in heaven and who is a minister in the holy places, the true tent that the Lord has set up. No other religion has offered you that. Don't even talk about him like that. Right? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the biblical gospel of Jesus Christ, offers what no other religion can offer you. A sufficient Savior who is mighty to save, true forgiveness, and an eternal intercessor who is right now sitting at the right hand of God praying for you. Why would you turn away from that? So when we make the claim that there is no other gospel, we're not trying to exclude anyone. In fact, what we're doing, we're doing the exact opposite. We're inviting you to the only way in. Nevertheless, some people will hear this message about this only sufficient Savior, true forgiveness of sin, and an eternal high priest and respond in unbelief. So if you're following along in the bulletin, we're on the second point. It's it's the second bullet point number two is unbelief. So different folks display their unbelief to this one and only gospel in different ways. If you look at verse 2 in Acts chapter 4, verse 2, it says, we see this, I'm sorry, it says, um, I'm sorry, let me read verse 1 because it won't make sense if I started 2. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests, and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were preaching because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So we got this group of people here whose unbelief was put on on display and is being put on display, and it says, the Bible says they were greatly annoyed. Now, some Bibles say um, provoked, or some versions of the Bible say greatly disturbed, or I think the King James says grieved. The the, the sense of the word here is is that they were like hard-worked, or they were exasperated. They just tired of hearing about it. Okay? That's the, the sense. And they're, they're just tired of hearing the apostles preach about Jesus and the resurrection. So the question is, is why they're annoyed? The, 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 these authorities here in the temple were so greatly annoyed because the Bible says Peter and John were, were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So if you know your Bibles, the Bible says, we know that the reason why this annoyed the Pharisees so much is because the Pharisees rejected the doctrine of the resurrection. Matthew 22, 23 states it pretty clear that the Sadducees simply say there is no resurrection. And in Acts 23, when the Apostle Paul was on trial in Jerusalem in front of this same council, 
Verse 6 says that the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, there is no angel, there, there are no angels, there are no spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge all of them. So the thing that annoyed these men is the same thing that annoys many other believers. Well, where they're annoyed by is that the apostles and Jesus before them preached a gospel that conflicted with what they wanted to believe about God. They wanted a God that they could fashion for themselves. But God says, no, you're wrong. You can't believe whatever you want to believe about him. You must believe what he revealed about himself according to his word. You can't have autonomy. You can't determine who God is, and you don't get to determine what pleases him. If you want God, you have to come to him on his terms, his way, through his Messiah. Right? Let me illustrate this for you. Anybody who knows me knows I absolutely hate bananas. Right? And if you go around and you talk about Corey and you say, I know Corey. Corey loves bananas. You're not talking about Corey no more. You understand? That's not me. That's a different dude. And in the same way, when we read the Bible, John eleven twenty five, 25, we hear Jesus say this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's the word of God. And then if you hear somebody turn around and say, when I die, God is going to resurrect me, because I was a good person, you don't believe in Jesus. That's not Christianity. If you think you're going to heaven because you loved your children well and you loved your, your, your people around you well or whatever, whatever you're whatever you holding up, you're not a Christian. That's not Christianity. That's not the God of the Bible. Family, being annoyed and getting tired about hearing, hearing about the great salvation that is given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ is a sign of unbelief. If you come to church and you think to yourself, oh, they're preaching about Jesus again? Are, are we going to talk about something else? That is a sign of unbelief. Kids. Listen to me, little kids. Listen to me. I got something for you. When all your parents get together, your parents and your grandparents get together, and you know how they tell the same stories about you over and over again, and you hate it, right? That's going to never stop, okay? That's never going to stop. They're going to do that over and over and over again until they die because they never get tired of hearing those stories because they love you so much. That's the same attitude that we got to have about hearing the gospel, family. You should never, never hear, get tired of hearing about your great Savior, our glorious salvation, and our gracious God. Something's wrong. Something's wrong if you don't want to hear about this anymore. Some other ways that unbelief is displayed is in verse 14. Look with me. 
at verse 14, chapter 4, verse 14. The Word of God says, But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they said nothing in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them, is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So what's going on here is, is that Peter preached, and now the council, they're responding to Peter's message. Right? And these men are not stupid. These men are thinking. Right? These men can see what happened. If you notice, the council could not and did not deny the reality of the miracle that happened. This is similar to what Jesus' conversation that he had with Nicodemus in chapter 3 of John chapter 3. If you remember, Nicodemus was a member of this same council during Jesus' ministry. And Nicodemus said to Jesus in John chapter 3, verse 2, he said, Rabbi, listen to this, we know, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. So this, they've been talking behind the scenes. They saw everything Jesus did. They recognized that only a person who has come from God can do those type of things. So they were talking about Jesus. They concluded, based on the signs that he did, that he was from God and God was with him. And they decided to crucify him anyway. Even after they openly confessed, they had all the evidence they needed. And all that evidence points to the fact that he was from God. They refused to believe. That's the same thing that's going on here in Acts chapter 4, family. They had enough evidence to believe, and they absolutely refused to do it. And I want you to notice something that's going on in this text that's absolutely incredible. These are the same men, right? Annas, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and the high priestly family. These are the same men that rejected Jesus' ministry. These are the same men that, I'm sorry, rejected John the Baptist's ministry. Yeah, and they rejected Jesus' ministry too. They rejected everything, okay? And then in John 11, these are the same men who, after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. These men knew that Jesus performed an amazing miracle by resurrecting a dead man, and they responded with a plot to kill both of them. Right? So time after time, they denied him, they rejected him, and they refused to believe him. And despite all of that, yet again, the Lord provides them with yet another opportunity at salvation by sending Peter and John to preach the gospel to them. Don't tell me God is not gracious. 
Our God is merciful. Our God is gracious, and he's slow to anger. He sent person after person after person after person, and God himself left heaven to give these men the opportunity to preach to God, to, to hear the gospel and come to salvation. God's not unkind to us. God is gracious. The Lord sent Hosea to fetch Gomer. He sent a storm and a great fish after Jonah, and he sent his son from heaven for us. And he turned his enemies into his friends and praised God for his mercy, even towards our unbelief. Amen? Hallelujah, somebody. Y'all not, y'all not happy enough right now. Okay? So to this point, we looked at the first point, which is there's only one gospel, if you're following along in your bulletin. There's only one gospel. Then we looked at the first of these responses, which is unbelief, and we saw how that unbelief kind of worked itself out in different ways. Now we need to look at the other response to the gospel, which is belief. So if you're following along in your bulletin, that's bullet point number three. And just like unbelief, this text has shown us different multifaceted ways that responding in belief works out in people's lives, okay? So look at verse 4, Acts 4, verse 4. The Word of God says, But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Now, this conjunction, that word but, is a conjunction. In the ESV, it simply says but. King James, I love it, it says how be it. It's a beautiful word. You should learn this word. Okay? It means nevertheless, right? Or in spite of. So let me explain to you what's going on. So the authorities in the temple were in direct hostile opposition to Peter and John's preaching, so much so that they resorted to violent persecution and arrested the apostles, put them in jail overnight. Nevertheless, the apostles' preaching had made such a profound impression that 5,000 people believed. They were convinced. They were brought to faith. They were converted. They were added to the church. Whatever term you want to believe or you want to use there, they believed the gospel, and they were saved. The miracle that they witnessed did not produce their faith, their belief, The persecution that they witnessed did not prevent their belief. The word of God does not need to be supplemented, and it cannot be stymied. The testimony about Christ was not reinforced, and it cannot be restricted. And our glorious gospel needs no help and can never be held back. The Father sent the Son to save his people, and he was met with opposition every step of the way. God sent his son to save his church, and every step of the way there was opposition. His entire life, from the cradle to the grave, was a life of opposition, family. He was born in a manger, then he was forced to flee to Egypt to avoid Herod's assassination attempt. He was tempted and tried in the desert by the prince of darkness, The authorities denied him justice at all of his trials. His countrymen and his own disciples forsook him. This council forbid that his name be preached. 
Nevertheless, none of that could stop him from saving his people and building his church. Amen. The word of God will not and cannot be bound. Death, hell, and the devil cannot constrain the Lord. His church will be built. His sheep will hear his voice. And his people will believe. Praise God. We have a Father in heaven, a Savior at his right side, and he sent the Spirit proceeding from them both who will not stop until all of his church has believed. Family, I got just one application. Just one. Here. If you have not believed the gospel, repent and believe. He will not turn away anyone who comes to him. That's what the Bible says. Consider everything that he has done to ensure that you was even just sitting in this seat today to hear this message. You're not here by, we say this all the time, you're not here by accident, chance, or coincidence. God has graciously ensured that you would be here this day to hear about this sufficient Savior and eternal intercessor, right? And this gospel that offers you what no other religion can offer you. You can be free from your sin, family. You can have your conscience clean. Women, you did not love your children the way that God has commanded you. You didn't do it. But God can forgive you. If you compare yourself to to another mother, you might be doing good. But when you compare yourself to what God has commanded you, you have not done that. But God can forgive you anyway. Fathers, you have not loved your wife and your children the way that God has commanded you. But you could be forgiven. You could be forgiven. Come to Christ. Repent and believe. Do not trust in your own works. They're not good enough. But there is one who has come and accomplished those good works on your behalf. And then he will credit all of his good righteousness to you. Why would you turn away from that? You want to do it yourself? You can't even pick a spouse. You have a Savior in heaven who has accomplished everything for you. Jesus did not just die on the cross to remove the guilt of your sin. He lived a perfectly holy life and accomplished the fulfill and fulfilled the entire law and loved people the way that you could never do. And if you just come to him in faith, that could be credited to your account. Why are you depending on yourself? Why? You don't have to do that. You could be free from sin. You could be completely free. You can have a completely clean conscience. There could be no no condemnation for you if you come to Jesus. He can reconcile you to this creator that you have offended. But you must believe Christ. There's no other way. There's no other way. So it's amazing here to see that even though there will be opposition to the gospel, that there are enemies of the cross who will try to stop the word of God from going out. Nevertheless, the word will never be bound and God's people will believe.
They will respond in belief. And then there's this final group, if we look at this passage, to see how belief in the gospel is displayed. Peter and John, it says, Peter and John believed and they were transformed. Look at verse 13. Acts 4, verse 13. This is what the Bible says. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I want you to look at this verse real close. Look at this. It says, so, so the council here, well, they heard Peter preach this sermon from verses 8 through 12, right? And then they, ex- they observed, they just paid attention. Remember I told you, these men are thinking, they're not, these are not idiots, okay? They recognized something in, the, in Peter and John. They saw their boldness, and they, under, they recognized their background. And, they, and the Bible says they were astonished by that. So in a sense, they were saying, like, how is it possible for these ordinary, uneducated fishermen to be able to talk like this about these glorious things. Remember last week in Pastor Rolo's sermon, Peter was a fisherman. He wasn't trained in rabbinical school. He didn't go to seminary. He was a fisherman. How could people like this speak with so much authority and so much candor and so much freedom and so much boldness? These kind of men with this background shouldn't be able to do this. And I, family, please, don't misrepresent. Do not rob God of his glory. Don't rob God of his glory when you interpret this text, okay? Don't think to yourself that the counsel is wrong and that you shouldn't judge. Don't think something like, oh, you shouldn't judge a book by its cover. They just, they don't know what they, no, 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 that's not what's happening. The counsel is right. They perceived correctly that these were common, uneducated men, right? They were fishermen, they were not educated, and they should not have been able to do this. And if you look at the second half of verse 13, the Word of God gives them the explanation for why these men could speak like this. It says, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That's why they could do that. The council recognized that Peter and John were Jesus' disciples. These men, in that moment, understood something. That the source of the disciples' boldness and confidence had nothing to do with them. But it was a direct result of how close they were to the Savior. It was by living with him and communing with him that they became like him. If you remember in John, in the Gospel of John chapter 7, this same thing was said about Jesus, right? When Jesus went to Jerusalem during the, the uh, Feast of Booths, in John, four, uh, John 7 verse 14 it says this, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning and he never studied? He's, that's the same thing, family. So you got some disciples here who spent three years at Jesus' feet. Three years they followed him from place to place, and they heard from the very word of God. He trained them, and he taught them. And now they're standing in front of the same people.
people in the same temple doing the same thing, being just like him, speaking with boldness and clarity about the glorious things of God. It wasn't their schooling. It wasn't their pedigree. It was simply that they had been with Jesus. That's why they could do that. Now, some of you might be asking yourself, Pastor Corey, what about verse 8? Verse 8 says that they was filled with the Holy Spirit, and that's the reason that they was full of boldness. Well, let me remind you, family, in Acts 2.33, while this same Peter is preaching at Pentecost, he said that Jesus died, God rose him up, and that he is exalted at the right hand of God, and that after having received the promised Holy Spirit, that he poured him out on the church. And then, if you remember, Jesus said in John 15, 26, But when a helper comes, whom I, Jesus, will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So, even if you argue that their boldness was based on the fact that they was filled with the Holy Spirit, Jesus sent them. He still did it. It's still because of him. Either way, he did it. All three persons of the Godhead is working together to redeem his people and sanctify his people. We don't have to make friends fight. It was because Peter and John had been with the Lord Jesus Christ that they were speaking like him about the gospel in the face of persecution. Proverbs 13.20 says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. So in other words, you become like whomever you're around. The apostles were like Jesus because they were close to him. In the, in the, account, in the council, they, they, they recognized it. Family, when you go outside at night, you're going to see a billion stars out there, right? And the next day when the sun rises, you're not going to see them, but they're still there. You know why you're not going to see them? Because the sun. Because there's a star that's closer to us than the rest of those stars. And the light from that star is drowning out the rest of them. And it's because it's close to us. If you want to be like Jesus, you need to be close to him. If you want to talk like these apostles, you want to be regular, uneducated, unseminary trained men and women who can stand up in the face of opposition and boldly talk about your wonderful Savior, you just need to be close to Jesus. You don't gotta, you don't gotta go to seminary and you don't gotta do all of this stuff. You just need to be close to your savior. That's it. You don't have to be magnificent. You just gotta be close. That's it. You just gotta do what he says. Be faithful to him and obey him. Remember, Jesus told the disciples in the beginning of Acts 1, he said, go to Jerusalem. Wait in the upper room for power to come on high so that you can be my witnesses. They just, they just, they were obedient. They were obedient. You don't have to be magnificent. You don't have to be changing over the world. You don't have to change the world. Mom, you don't have to be super mom. You just got to be faithful mom. Obey Jesus. That's it. Pastor, Pastor Ed told a story a couple weeks ago about um, Eliza Spurgeon. Spurgeon. So the, the story was that Spurgeon might have preached, what, over 8 million 
souls or something like that. And all his mom did was pray for him every day. That's it. You just got to be faithful. Mom, you just got to be a faithful mother. Dad, listen to me. You just got to be a faithful dad. Raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. There's nowhere in the Bible or in the Constitution to say that your kid needs their own bedroom and a Mercedes Benz when they get a driver's license. You don't got to send them to Stanford. You just got to show them Jesus. That's it. Just be faithful. Be close to Jesus. That's all you have to do. Amen? The Bible says that these men turned the world upside down because they was obedient. That's it. Just be close to Christ and be obedient. That's the challenge for us today, family. Okay? You have to study the word of God. You have to learn from it. You have to fill ourselves with it so much so that when people look at us and when they hear us, they see and hear Jesus Christ. You have to be so filled and so guided by the word of Christ that when people are around us, they will be able to perceive that that man, that woman has been with Jesus. Every ministry, every activity, and every member of this church, what we have to do is we have to strive to live up to that motto that we have to know Jesus and make him known. So that you and I could be like Peter, transformed to be more and more like the Savior. That's the challenge for us. Amen? The, the pastors, what our job is to do, the, these pastors and any future pastors, what our challenge is, is to show you more and more and more of Jesus, bring you closer and closer and closer to him so that you could be transformed into his likeness. We've seen in this passage that there is only one gospel. There's only one. There's no other way. There's no other way. There was no other gospel. There is no other religion. There is nothing else that gives to you a Savior who is truly God, who is truly man, who is sufficient and mighty to save, who can provide true forgiveness of sins, and who offers you an eternal high priest who is sitting at the right hand of majesty forever making intercession to your God. No other religion can offer you that. And we also saw that when this one and only gospel is proclaimed, there's only two responses, belief or unbelief. And that unbelief will be displayed in various different ways, but it's still only one or the other. And at the preaching of the gospel, some people will be annoyed. Some people will refuse to believe. But others, and I'm confident that that's us in this room, will believe and be transformed. Amen? Praise God that even in our unbelief, our God is slow to anger He's long-suffering toward us, but it's so glorious that in our belief, our God transforms us, making us into, our likeness, into the likeness of our glorious Savior. Amen, church? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, help us, O oh God. Lord, help us to believe these things, not to reject them, O oh Lord. Help us, God, to respond to your word in belief and not unbelief today. 
Lord, you are good. You are kind to us, O oh God. Thank you for another opportunity to hear about your Savior. Help us, God, by the aid of your Spirit to come to you. It's in the holy name of Christ we pray. Amen.